If you don't understand what the implications are of these new technologies in terms of benefits or threat to you as a company, you really need to think very carefully about it. Kia ora, I'm Troy, here as CEO and welcome to Stirring the Pot. Thanks for connecting. If you're new, here's what you can expect. We're going to be talking the tough stuff, the things that keep us metalheads up at night. There are many challenges facing our industry and equally many opinions on how we should tackle them. Stirring the Pot provides a facilitated forum to discuss and challenge these viewpoints. I'm super excited to hear from the leaders, experts and influencers around the world who are shaping the way our metals industry in New Zealand evolves and innovates. That's why you'll hear me and the HERO team interviewing many of them while bringing our own viewpoints as well. So let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. Today our conversation is with Joran Roos. He's a man that wears many hats, but today he talks with us in his capacity as a visiting professor at Flinders University. Joran is passionate about strategy, innovation management, research policy and intellectual capital, and has made his way to New Zealand to be a guest speaker at a meeting with Business New Zealand, which Hero was happy to be part of. This was very fortuitous for stirring the pot, and we're very happy to take advantage of his presence here in Aotearoa. Sharon, it's been uh, more than five years since I left Australia, and when I left, manufacturing didn't look to be in a good way. Um, we'd lost our textile clothing footwear, uh, we'd lost automotive, and we were having strong pressure on the other manufacturing industries, still being an example. Uh, but I was really pleased to read more recent data uh, from the Australian Institute around the resurgence of manufacturing in Australia uh, with an increase in jobs of around 40,000 and public sentiment, most importantly, drifting towards seeing uh, manufacturing in a more positive light. How is manufacturing in Australia at the moment and what is the public sentiment towards it? Well, I think it is improving on both both accounts. Um, partly there has been a, a set of number of positive events, everything from some investments that made from overseas, for example, in the Wayala Steelworks, uh, and also some of the issues around the defence industry and the opportunities that that have created, and the development of a number of firms that are playing in the borderline between traditional manufacturing and the new digitally related activities. Uh, one of the problems that historically has ailed manufacturing is that it has a very high productivity improvement, which means that the, on average, the number of people in manufacturing tends to decline over time, whereas the production goes up. And in the statistics, if you look solely at the number of people that is involved in the industry, it looks like it's declining, but actually it is improving. And like all over the world, we produce more physical products this year than we have done any other year previously in history. So manufacturing is alive and well, and in Australia, I'm pleased to say it's improving. And usually public sentiment translates into government support. What is the government support for manufacturing looking like? Well, government support is a tricky question because obviously you have to be very careful. Um, the, the issue about support is to enhance competitiveness of industry, not to reduce competitiveness. And sometimes you hand out free money too easily, you actually make a lazy industry and you don't want that. But on the other hand, you do want support for companies improving their productivity and their competitiveness. So some of the programs that government have, both on state and federal level, uh, achieve these, and some do not, which is quite normal across the world. I have noticed that the Australian government has invested fairly significantly in manufacturing with um, large advanced manufacturing funds and so on. In New Zealand, uh, manufacturing's contribution to 
third business expenditure on R&D is around 42% of the total, whereas GERD, the government expenditure on R&D, is only around half that. Is that common or reflective of what happens on a global level? No, normally in, in advanced economies, what you tend to find is that the business component on total spending or R&D is higher than the government component. Uh, it's quite The government component is relatively stable across the world. It hovers around 1% plus minus half a percentage point thereabouts, and then the rest is, is business. So if you have a total of 2%, then your business will be around about between half and 1%. And if you have 4%, then of course your business will be somewhere between two and a half and three percent of that area. So it is a reflection of how R&D intensive your economy is as a whole. Uh, but on the whole, you tend to find that both Australia and New Zealand uh, represent those countries where the business component of R&D is relatively low, which is an undesirable situation. Hmm. In terms of the um, manufacturing's uh, uh, public sentiment. Uh, in New Zealand, we've got a bit of an issue in that uh, we're not seen as a very um, lively man, um, industry and recruitment becomes quite difficult. How would you uh, view um, being able to make that change within the position of how a future employee would look at an industry? And does that have anything to do with the R&D and innovation of the industry? Well, it has to do with many things. Uh, part, of course, is the, uh, the type of skills that you require in the industry. It has to do with the dynamics of the industry itself, so how R&D intensive it, how much is happening. It has to do with the, the way you work inside the individual company, as you perceive to be a, a good, positive working culture for somebody who is young and so on, or is it perceived to be top-down, hierarchical, quite stringent in this area. So there are many things that contribute to this area. So there are countries where, you know, working in manufacturing, Manufacturing is seen as a as a generally positive career move. You know, the Germanic countries is an example of that. And there are countries where there are other professions seen as more exciting for people coming out of university, be that as a lawyer or as an accountant or whatever it may be. So Part of changing this is, is changing the way the, the individual firms operate, but it's also changing the dynamics of the industry itself. And, and the responsibility of this lies basically on the companies. Yep. In, in New Zealand, uh, at the moment, there is quite a lot of focus on um, the living standards, which government has made a commitment to improve the living standards of all New Zealanders. And I think this creates a bit of um, it, uh, an opportunity for manufacturing to demonstrate its significance to society and maybe that will improve its um, general perception. But how do you think manufacturing contributes to living standards? Well, what you want in, in any economy is you want an, uh, an industry that is extremely competitive and proves that by exporting. So you want, and you as a country, you want to export more than your relative size as a country would allow you to do. So if your economy makes up 1% of the world economy, you want companies that have a market share internationally of more than 1% in the export markets totality. That shows that they are very, very good. Uh, and if you have many of those companies located in Australia that export on that level, that means they bring in a lot of wealth to the country. And that wealth can then be spread out in many ways. It can spread directly in forms of salaries and 
and contributions and dividends to shareholders and so on. It can be spread indirectly by an increased tax contribution and increased uh, supply chain activities that you have domestically. So manufacturing tends to have, on the whole, longer supply chain than services. They tend to have a higher level of salary, average salaries throughout these supply chains, at least historically, than services have. And they tend to export more generally than services do. So on the whole, manufacturing has the potential to be one of the major contributors to the prosperity in the economy. And you can look at that and you can, if you look at the, the countries in the world which do well in terms of prosperity, they normally correlate quite well with a very high uh, share of their relative performance in manufacturing. And um, one has to be careful now because manufacturing also includes services. Most manufacturing companies internationally also sell services and export services. And that means that when you look at the service components, it, it is actually not services separated from manufacturing. It is frequently services linked to manufacturing. And the more sophisticated an economy becomes, the more services are a complement to manufacturing, so they can't live without each other, whereas the less sophisticated economies, the, the more services are separated from manufacturing. And in those places, you get things like tourism, which actually is um, tourism, raw material export is generally what characterizes very low developed economies, so you don't want to go down that route. Mm. We do speak a lot about digitisation within manufacturing, but this servitisation we, in New Zealand at least, haven't been speaking a lot about. What, what do you think the opportunities are there and how would a um, SME manufacturing firm start to think differently about their business model? Well, most manufacturing firms already provide services. They may not look at them as a separate business. They may just give them away occasionally. They, they have people that go out and fix machines when they break down. They have installation services. They have a number of those issues, which actually are services. So servitization actually just means that to compensate for the reduced margins and profitability of the actual manufacturing component of the whole value chain within manufacturing, where you have R&D development and sales and so on, but you have a manufacturing component. And that component tends to have, over time, a reduced margin uh, and hence a reduced contribution to profit. And that means you need something else to stay profitable, and that something else is services. And those services is anything from what I've said to very sophisticated capture of data that you convert into some predictions that is enable your customers to achieve more value than previously. So the, the servitization is something that's been going on forever. It's just that it's acquired names since about 10, 20 years back, uh, and it's become more critical for any manufacturing company to think very carefully around what are the services that they already provide and how can they make them clearer and cleaner so that they become a business in their own right that has a much larger profit margin than the declining profit margin in the other necessary components of their activities. In uh, here as customer base, we tend to have basically two categories of membership, um, people who are representing the building and construction sector and, and people who are mainly in manufacturing. And the World Economic Forum has released this future of um, building and construction video that highlights three different scenarios of what the future may look like. And two of them um, I thought you would have a really good view on because you mentioned them in your presentation this morning. The first one is um, a world that's actually dominated by manufacturing and so really building and construction is happening as a manufacturing base. Um, with off-site manufacturing. What do you see as the opportunity there? Well, if you look back historically, manufacturing has been a 
basically setting up a, a manufacturing plant in one location, running it once and then moving it all to the next location. And, and that hasn't been very effective nor efficient. Uh, so what you're seeing is that value chain is changing. So you are creating the basically the components of the building in one site. You're shipping it to wherever it's going to be set up and then it's being assembled there at a perfect fit with a really high quality level. Uh, and I think you can see already now, specifically with the emergence of some new materials that are very suitable for this, things like uh, engineered timbers and so on, that that is happening across the world. Um, so uh, that means that in that scenario, building is moving to become a manufacturing industry in the more traditional sense, with more traditionally locked-in supply chain, locked in logistics and the ability to achieve economies of scale and hence a more stable quality that you had before. And that is supported by the development of the, the digitalization of building industries, the BIM systems that allow you to create digitally all the buildings you want to create physically before you actually create them physically to make sure you have all the pipes in the right place and the ventilation systems in the right place and the electricity and so on. And you can test that the building actually going to do its job before you actually put it in place. So I think in, in that world, we will see um, the building and construction industry very much taking its place um, among other manufacturing companies with very similar approaches, lean manufacturing and all this type of activities that previously was not as prevalent in that sector. So yes, that is an interesting way forward and we already see parts of that materializing. And the second um, future scenario was a green reboot where um, obviously the environmental changes that are happening around us has the main influence. And I really liked your concept of the high road and the low road that you spoke of this morning. Can you tell us about that? Well, I don't think anybody, no matter where you go in the world, with some extremely rare exceptions, have any view other than we desire to have an environmentally friendly future in the broadest definition of the term, minimum impact on our environment, the ability to reset it to what it possibly should have been before we as human beings started to put it out of kilter. Um, so I, I don't think that that is any disagreement on that. What we do have too little discussion about is the route to get there. <clears throat> so there are simplistic space, there are two ways of getting there. You can, you can impose on your economy and the players in the economy, so the companies, uh, a number of increasing costs. So you can say, we're going to charge you with this, we're going to tax you that, we're going to do this, that and the other. And that means that, that if nothing else changes, you will arrive at this desirable endpoint at a, in an economy with a lower ability to generate prosperity, which means that basically everybody's going to be worse off. So you will have poverty without pollution, which is not necessarily a desirable outcome. Uh, and in essence, that is what you tend to hear uh, frequently in many countries when you talk to people who are arguing um, the route to this journey. There's, there seems to be some form, frequently some form of assumption that unless it is painful, it isn't worth doing. And I don't really agree with that. <clears throat> the, the other way of looking at it is to say that every step on the way should have the outcome that you have created more wealth or prosperity for your economy at the same time as you have reduced the impact you have on the operating environment you exist in. And that means that when you go through that journey, at the end of the day, you will have um, prosperity without pollution, which is highly desirable because everybody will be better off. So, so those are the two general issues. And it's very, very easy to find examples of the first issue. It's not so easy to find examples of the second, but they do exist. And, and I will 
share with you a, a, a very simplistically one example, which is what is known as the hybrid project with a T at the end. Um, that is a, a project in Sweden, which is led by um, the Swedish steelmaker SSAB uh, and um, supported in a triumvirate with uh, Vattenfall, which is the Swedish energy, um, hydroelectric energy generator, so it's green-based uh, renewable energy, and the LKAB, which is one of the world's leading producers, which is a Swedish company and mine, around pellets. So they have looked into uh, whether it is possible to replace coking coal in steelmaking and have found that basically it is. Uh, and yes, it requires uh, some changes to the process, Change changes to the equipment. It requires access to hydrogen that needs to be transportable, whether you convert it to ammonium, catalytic, and back again. Uh, and it it uh, it also requires some modification to the incoming pellets in the system. I'm simplifying this brutally now. Um, but as a consequence of this, you will get a steel that is totally green in its production, basically. And instead of having the surplus carbon that you use to remove simplistic express the impurities in the in the steel smelter um, you will and then blow oxygen on it so it disappears off in co2 you will now have hydrogen that you blow oxygen on and it goes off in water vapor so you you have a complete reduction in the co2 emissions uh, plus that you build a, a, a supply industry you get more IP you can export all these things so as a consequence of this thing being implemented now slowly because you don't replace your blast furnaces if you don't have to and you normally look at them every 15th year when they are in a refurbishing cycle um, you will be able to generate an industry that in its own right is going to be better off it's going to probably achieve higher market shares in its products because it's green products compared to non-green products you will have a local supply chain industry growing around these things around the IP they will be able to export these things when other countries choose to go down the same route in this area so as a consequence the country will be greener because you're going to remove about 10% minimum of the whole country's CO2 emissions. At the same time, you will have created substantially more wealth in the economy, uh, which is exactly what you want. So there are some examples around there where you can do these things, but it requires a mindset of doing these things. And in terms of uh, government regulation um, as a driver of innovation, like that example, um, how does that work? Well, Government basically have three <laughs> toolboxes at its disposal to to drive industrial uh, policy issues. It, it has a, a supply side toolbox where you actually hand out money, whether you do it indirectly through R and D tax credit or directly through grants. That 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 portfolio is quite commonly used. It drives activity. It doesn't necessarily drive outcome. And sometimes the activity is not the activity you want. So. It is, I have looked at this in some detail, it is quite clear that, for example, R&D tax credits in some instances drives reclassification of activities rather than new activities. So what you see on the macroeconomic level is more R&D being reported. That does not mean that more R&D is done. Now, there are sectors where this works, sectors with long lead times, startups, uh, and um, very poor companies in terms of balance sheets and profit and loss, for example, pharmaceutical space. There it does work if it's an upfront payment of the R&D tax credit. But generally speaking, as a whole, it has very poor outcomes. But industry will want it because, in essence, it's free money. So they will be very upset if you took it away. And they will always ask for more. But it doesn't really generate the outcome you want. This, the second toolbox is um, information provision. Um, 
in an economy with many SMEs, most of these companies doesn't, do not have the ability to spend the money to acquire the necessary information on which they can make good decisions. It's just too expensive to buy a market research report for a million dollars. So government have the opportunity to use their negotiation and purchasing power uh, to buy one of these reports, A, cheaper, <laughs> and B, with the right to distribute it within the economy. So they could buy a million dollar report and have each company, thousand companies, buy it for a thousand dollars each. So the taxpayer would not be worse off and the companies would be able to buy and have a better basis for decisions. So you don't tell them what decision to make. That's the company's decision. But you enable them to have better information on which to make these decisions. Uh, so that tends to generally reduce the failure risk in the economy. The third one is the most effective part of the portfolio, which is the, the demand side portfolio, where you have three tools broadly. You have um, procurement, where basically you are looking at, at um, uh, using the buying of things that don't exist as a driver for developing economies. The, the world's most successful uh, program in that portfolio, and by the way, most successful all categories, is an American program called, well, it changes name with different administration, but basically called the SBIR program. And it's in, simplistically expressed, it means that every federal authority has to put aside around about 2.5% of their procurement budget. And then they have to identify problems that, if solved, would help this agency to achieve its objectives, but there is no solution on the market. And then they can go out and basically just have three requirements. You know, uh, number one, if you widget, if I get it, would it solve my problem? Number two, do I think you can make it happen? And number three, do you have a plan how to grow the company and become internationally successful? And if the answer is yes to all those three, you can get some simplistic funding and get forward. This has been extremely successful over the 40 years or so it has existed. And every year, one part or other of the federal system in the US is audited by the Auditor General. And it always concludes that it's the best use of taxpayers' money of all programs in the US. So procurement is very powerful because it drives outcome because you don't get paid unless you deliver and then it gives the basis for companies to grow uh, the second tool you have there and by the way on the first one um, there are some studies to show that that program has generated more successful companies internationally than the total u.s venture capital industry so it's quite interesting to compare these numbers if you look at them you can have doubts about whether that is true or not but it could be argued that it is correct um, the second the second tool is the uh, uh, issue about regulation and there are simplistically expect three types of regulations there are those that in uh, that creates a cost for the person exposed to the regulation or the entity, and then the benefit to the rest of society is minimal. Uh, we normally call that red tape, and that should be removed as quickly as possible. Then there are regulation that creates a cost for, for the object, and, and they, but the benefits that are larger for society, they need to be kept. Um, and, you know, that's part of what we have in terms of regulations. Uh, then there are regulations you can use to drive innovation. And the way to do that is to look at a specific domain where your economy has a potential and a domain where it's likely that the rest of the world is going to go down the same regulatory route as you have. 
Uh, and in, if you then are a first mover in imposing a regulatory burden on your industry in that sector, you will force that industry to overcome that burden by increasing its productivity or efficiency in some form or shape. And then when other countries go down the same route with a similar regulation or the same regulation, your economy, the companies in it, now have a competitive advantage that they have a window to put to use to gain global market share, which is very difficult to take away from them once it's gained. And you can see this, uh, the companies that have been created basically by this type of system, a, a great example of that is the world's largest um, wind uh, generator producer with Danish company Vesta, which came out of a lot of Danish regulatory systems creating this type of issues. So uh, that regulatory tool is quite successful specifically in domains where it's difficult for the market to assign a price to something. And one of those domains, for example, is the environmental domain. There was some uh, pretty old uh, research now, about 10 years old research, but interesting nevertheless for our industry um, because we would generally fall into the category of being low tech um, that found that for most OECD countries, the um, low tech industries were contributing the most to their growth, um, both in employment and financial um, and the, I find this interesting because most of our discussions when we talk about innovation and when government policy tries to address innovation focuses more on the high tech end. What do you think the role of low tech transformation is in terms of an economy? Well, it's, it's critical. So, so if you divide it into high tech, medium tech and low tech, I would argue based on the statistics that the biggest contributor is the medium tech area. Um, the, and, and it has to do with a number of things. Firstly, it has to do with the relative size of these sectors because what was uh, high-tech uh, 20 years ago is normally medium to low-tech this time. So there's a life cycle issue about things migrating down to, you know, if you don't innovate, they become standard and you take it for granted and they become commoditized in these areas. Um, uh, so that's the one issue. The other one is that uh, in early phases of an industry, you tend to have, um, firstly, companies tend to be small. So by definition, they don't employ a lot of people. They tend to grow rapidly. That means that their percentage of growth is very high. The absolute numbers may not be so, but the percentage of growth, if the industry doubles, it's 100% growth, but they may only go from uh, 500 people to 1,000. So it's, you know, the, there's a difference between percentage and the, and the numbers. Uh, and the, the other one is that it very rapidly enters a phase of a productivity improvement. So that means that <clears throat> if, you, if you serve a growing market, but your productivity improvement is larger than the underlying market growth, it means that next year I can produce what the market needs at less people than I use today in spite of growing. And, and that is a phase that the high-tech industries reach on average quite early. Uh, whereas if you have... Um, Low-tech industries, generally speaking, the productivity growth with them is on the whole, and this is not a good thing, but it is lower than frequently the underpinning market growth, which means they hire more people. It doesn't mean that they will guarantee the survival because it's very dangerous not to have high productivity growth, but it does have implications. So there is actually a contradiction between uh, increase in number of jobs and, and profitability growth in industry. So you, you tend to find that jobs jobs increase in sectors with low productivity 
<laughs> whereas jobs decreases in sectors with high productivity, with the exception of those that serve markets that grow incredibly rapidly, which is normally just in the early phases of, of markets. So, so you have to be very careful here. So it, this all ends up to most people will be employed in medium to low-tech industries. Those industries will have the largest chunk of employment, and the further down you go on the list, the more the employment tends to grow if there is any underlying growth because of low productivity. But also, the lower down you grow, the higher the number of business failures that will happen in this area. In the high end, you will have a lot of failures in the early phases, and then you will have a rapid growth, which looks very large percentage-wise, which will not necessarily be very large people-wise, and it then rapidly run into a situation where the productivity improvement as these firm stabilizes, starts to exceed the underlying market growth that also matures, and then suddenly they will be migrating down to the medium tech type industries. So bottom line is you need a portfolio of them all, uh, but don't don't get yourself stuck in something because it is sexy and high tech. Um, have a realistic view of, of what is meaningful and what you need to do. And all companies need to adopt some of these high tech technologies if they're going to survive, whether they are low tech or medium tech or high tech or, or whatever. Uh, and um, if you really want to put your money on successful companies, you should put the money on one or two types of companies. Either people that through a protectable high-tech innovation are able to revolutionize the, the way a low-tech sector works right? as a guaranteed winner. The, the other one is a, some form of technology that are packaged up and that serves to satisfy a need that falls under the headline vanity among normal people that is also highly profitable and will always succeed. <laughs> and that first um, quite, uh, option is actually an ex a example of disruption. So I know you've got some really good case studies of disruption. Can you give us some of the most recent ones you've come across? One of the technologies that are generally being uh, deployed across all industries is what we call machine learning. Uh, Sometimes it, it falls under one of the technologies under the headline artificial intelligence, a term I don't like because it's neither artificial nor intelligence in a sense, <laughs> but, but machine learning is one of them. And machine learning requires a lot of data and the ability to train itself to do things. So in sectors where you have access to multiple combinatorial issues that, that you can't really pursue because of cost and time, these, these tools are extremely powerful. One of them is to develop, for example, new flavoring substances or new fluid flavors, where we do see that the ability to put to use um, these technologies has enabled a rapid uh, increase in a number of market why successful innovations in some of these food flavoring companies. Um, the other one is, if you look at additive manufacturing, it, the impact it has on supply chains. An example, I think, is um, there is a large American company that produces um, propeller engines. And um, don't kill me on the exact numbers, but the one of those engines used to contain something like 120, 130 components that were you know, supplied through a supply chain and then assembled into this engine. The, the engine was then... Uh, redesigned. It's now uh, produced using mostly additive manufacturing and makes up something like less than 10 components. That means that there is around about 110, 120 companies that no longer are part of the supply chain of that OEM. So if 
you don't understand what the implications are of these new technologies in terms of benefits or threat to you as a company, you really need to think very carefully about it because there is a constant flow of these type of examples that are surfacing, illustrating what can be done if you have the understanding of both your markets and the technology and the willingness and clarity of how to go about achieving these things. If I had my time again, I think I would study to be a waste technologist. And um, it seems to me that there's such an opportunity to look at waste differently in the supply chain. And you had a really great example in the timber industry. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. The, the first thing I think you have to do is to adopt a different mindset. So actually, there is no such thing as waste. The only thing there is is a raw material for which you yet have not found a profitable use. So you have to look at it that way. So it's not a problem. It's an opportunity you have not managed to grasp yet. So. Uh, there is a, it's a Norwegian company that, that um, you know, for a long, long time has been in the forestry industry. In other words, the input is the same. There are logs and other things coming in, and they used to be fairly traditional products coming out to the other end. And when you, when you run paper and pulp and other type of activities, one of the problems you have is a, is a component called lignin, which simplistically expressed, you can say, is the glue among the cellulose in a tree. Uh, and this is something you need to get rid of, and it causes problems in your chemistry and stuff like that. They then initially applied some chemistry and nowadays some biotechnology, and they converted this lignin to uh, vanilla flavor. So it's exactly the same vanilla mo flavoring molecules you get out of the vanilla orchid. Um, but they allowed, it allowed them to produce this, this industrially at a low cost, and they basically took around about 40% of the world market for vanilla flavoring used in food, which is a pretty good market share globally and very, very profitable for them. So the beginning of the plant looks exactly the same, but the end point looks a little bit different. So again, you see examples in this case about uh, sophisticated process technologies and equipment, but also biotechnology and the understanding of that and how to convert one type of molecule into another, but there's nothing artificial about it. It's exactly the same molecule as the, the, the one you get from orchids. And you don't have to go and rip the orchids out of the jungle in order to do this. You have a stable supply at a predictable cost into the food industry. So there you go. Thanks for joining our conversation with Joran Roos today. If you'd like to connect more with Joran, his details can be found in our show notes. Joran recommends the following quote from the author Mariana Mazzucato, who said, tomorrow's growth or long-term economic growth is determined by today's investments in R&D, infrastructure projects, human capital, technical change and innovation. But innovation requires decisions on directionality and capabilities to understand and engage dynamically with future technological and market opportunities. Food for thought till we meet next time. So hit subscribe and if you liked what you heard today, please like, review or share with any metalheads you know. Let's spread the word. Hi, it's Joran here again. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you want to learn more from me, I'm looking forward to speaking at the MAD 2019 conference on future-proofing New Zealand's manufacturing and design economy this May. Here I'll be sharing insights into the international development trajectory of manufacturing. So come join me at the MAD 2019 Tech Week 19 headline event in Auckland on 20 and 21st May. Early bird registration is closed on 5th April, so register as soon as you can to take advantage of these rates. Go to mad.org.nz for more information.